You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. All right, well, good morning again, church. Uh, Please open up your Bibles to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. It's page 836 in the Pew Bible right in front of you. If you don't have your own copy of Scripture, it's page 836. Starting a brand new study in the Gospel of Mark. So settle in, because we're going to be in Mark forever, all right? (laughs) It'll be a long time in Mark, but we're going to be blessed by it. So church, a number of years ago, my family and I, we took a a trip down to Florida, which we typically do in the month of February, but not this year. And I'm not depressed at all about it. (laughs) But anyway, uh, this particular year that we went, the kids were younger, and the plan was to fly to Orlando and stay overnight, and then travel the next day to our final destination, which was actually in the Florida Keys. Um, And as it turned out, our initial flight was significantly delayed. However, I didn't worry about it too much because our hotel reservation was secure, right? I I knew that no matter how late we arrived, we're going to have a room to stay in when we got there, or so I thought. So, I mean, we ended up getting to our hotel that night, like around midnight. And as you can imagine, family, three kids, we're all a little on edge, we're all tired, a little cranky, we just want to get to our room and go to bed. And so I went to go check in, only to find out that the clerk gave our room to someone else. And the hotel was sold out. And... Like, at that moment, I kind of identified with Joseph and Mary a little bit because I was told there was no room at the inn, right? But the only difference was uh, between me and Joseph and Mary is I had a reservation at the inn, right? And so I was a little perturbed. And the clerk, he was very nice about it, very kind guy, Scottish guy, very kind. Uh, He felt terrible, and he scrambled to find some options for us. However, the only rooms he had available were actually had two rooms available, but they were both under construction. One didn't have a bathroom, and the other didn't have any beds. And so, like, that was a non-starter for us. And so the clerk ended up calling a local hotel, which was not as nice as the one that we got. We ended up staying there, and we, we, made, it, we made it, but we had to stay somewhere else. And I started thinking about this story. And church, if we're painfully honest, I think many of us would admit that sometimes we're guilty of treating Jesus the same way the hotel treated us. In other words, we say there's plenty of room for us, a room for Jesus in our lives. And we say that he holds this special place in our hearts. He has reservations in our hearts. However, when he actually comes to check in, all we have to offer him is the leftovers. All we have to offer Jesus is the bare minimum. You know, Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to be with him and eat with him and he with me. You see, friends, Jesus doesn't want the bare minimum in our lives. He doesn't want a place on our front porch. He wants a place in our parlor. He wants us to experience his presence in a deep and meaningful and personal way. But take notice, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't break in and enter. In other words, Jesus doesn't force himself on us. Instead, he wants us to recognize our need for him and make plenty of room accordingly. And when we do, when we actually open the doors and and really let Jesus in, we're going to experience this special intimacy with God unlike anything we've ever known before. 
And so this morning, as we begin our new study in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be reminded of the importance of making room for Jesus. And we're going to be given some very practical principles on how to do exactly that. Does that sound like a plan today? Let's bow our heads and ask God's blessing one more time before we open up. Father, I, I am in desperate need of you this morning as we open up your word. Lord, I, I pray that I would get out of your way, that your word would speak. And uh, Lord, that you would use me, this broken vessel, God, to help accomplish that task. We just commit our time to you and pray, Lord, that we would all leave here with much more room for Jesus in our lives than when we arrived. And all God's people said, amen. All right, so before jumping into today's text, I want to give you a little bit of context as it regards the Gospel of Mark. So the Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark, who, if you remember, actually did not have the greatest start as a disciple of Jesus. You see, early in his ministry, John Mark served as a missionary with Barnabas and the Apostle Paul. However, after a major disagreement, John Mark abandoned Paul on the mission field and returned home. In other words, he quit in the middle of his ministry. But nevertheless, God never quit on him. Years later, John Mark ended up reconciling with Paul, and he became a trusted minister of Christ for the rest of his life, so much so that God chose to use John Mark to write the Gospel of Mark. I like what Bible commentator commentator R. Kent Hughes said. He said, what a recovery Mark made. He rose from a failed follower of Christ to a devoted disciple to premier biographer and honored martyr. Friends, it's a great reminder to us, right off the bat, that we serve a God of countless second chances. Amen? Now, the Gospel of Mark is the oldest of all the Gospels. It was written during a dramatic time in the Roman world. Emperor Nero was reckless and ambitious, and history tells us that Nero didn't like the makeup of Rome. And so, to change its makeup, he decided to set it on fire, literally set Rome on fire. Rumor even has it that Nero watched Rome burn while merrily playing his fiddle. Well, after six days of inferno, the smoke cleared, and 10 out of Rome's 14 districts were in complete ruin. And Nero, refusing to take responsibility for the disaster, he needed a scapegoat. And so he blamed Christians. One scholar said he butchered them wholesale. And so as a result, God's people were driven into catacombs for hiding. And so it was under this setting that the Gospel of Mark was written. Now, the primary purpose of this Gospel was to encourage the Gentile church in Rome. And so with his fast-paced, dramatic style, Mark strategically moves from scene to scene to show believers that Jesus was someone who identified with their suffering and that following him was still worth the sacrifice. And the overarching message, message of Mark's Gospel is just as timely now as it was then. Chuck Swindoll said, while Mark wrote to a persecuted first century audience, the Holy Spirit prepared this message for the ages. Throughout the two millennia since Mark's writing, each generation has faced a wide range of challenges to faithful discipleship, and the gospel of Mark has fulfilled its purpose. And so, it's with this context that we're going to begin, we're going to open up the gospel of Mark and read the first eight verses, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, so follow along with me. Says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes, those, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am un, not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There's an old hymn. It's called, Have You Any Room for Jesus? And the lyrics read this. Have you any room for Jesus, he who bore your load of sin? As he knocks and asks admission, sinner, will you let him in? Room for pleasure, room for business, but for Christ the crucified, not a place that he can enter in the heart for which he died. Have you any room for Jesus, as in grace he calls again? Or, oh, today is time accepted. Later you may call in vain. Room and time give now to Jesus. Soon will pass God's day of grace. Soon your heart left cold and silent in your Savior's pleading cease. Church, while this hymn was originally written as an invitation to salvation, I believe it asks a question that every child of God must answer. Have you any room for Jesus? In today's passage, we find John the Baptist essentially asking the same question. You see, his cry in the wilderness was a call to God's people to make room for Jesus in their lives. And I've broken down today's passage into four practical ways that we can make room for Jesus. So let's begin by looking at the first. Number one, make room for his way. Make room for his way. Look again at verses one through three. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now in ancient times, long before kings would enter a town, construction crews would arrive early to level out hills, fill holes, clear rubble and debris, and remove all obstructions. And so similar to when there's a presidential visit in our area, the entire area is closed down, cleaned up, potholes are filled in, that kind of deal, and cleared out so there's an unhindered route for the president's destination. And it also sent a clear message to people in that destination, hey, prepare yourself, the king is coming. Well, in the same way, God sent a forerunner to help prepare the way for Christ's arrival. However, instead of preparing hearts, this forerunner was sent to prepare, excuse me, instead of preparing roads, this forerunner was sent to prepare hearts. And in these opening verses, we learn that 700 years before John the Baptist came on the scene, the prophet Isaiah foretold that God would send him to accomplish a special task. Church, you know what this tells us? This tells us that from eternity past, God had a specific and special plan for the life of John the Baptist. And do you know what else? God has a special, specific plan for your life as well, if you're willing to embrace it. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he what? Read this with me. He planned for us long ago. You see, John embraced God's good plan for his life. He completely surrendered to Jesus Christ and devoted his entire adult life to following God's ways instead of his own. And even though John had his fair share of pain and suffering and hardships, because by the way, when you follow Jesus, that comes with the package. And even though he had all those, God still blessed him and saw him through a glorious conclusion. In fact, John earned a special place in human history. Jesus called him the greatest man who ever lived. And now John is enjoying all the great rewards of 
heaven. You see, church, when we choose to embrace God's good plan for our lives, we can expect his hand of, his hand of blessing both in this life and the life to come, eternal rewards. However, when we deliberately choose to disregard God's plan for our lives, when we deliberately choose to disobey something he's calling us to do, when we deliberately choose to go our own way instead of his way, we're actually choosing, listen, we're actually choosing to forfeit God's blessing over our lives. We're choosing to forfeit the blessings and the benefits that come from a life of, of obedience. We're actually choosing to forfeit God's best for us. And in doing so, our Christian lives take on the tragic label of what could have been. What could have been. Church, I don't know all the specifics of what God has planned for your life. I mean, I've got a lot here, right? But I'm talking specifics. But here's what I do know. I know that God wants so much more for your life than what could have been. That I know. And I know that because Jesus said so. Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it, what? Abundantly. Abundantly. And we think, you know, here in Western culture, we think of abundant life. Yeah, the, the mansions and the cars and all the stuff. No, I'm not, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Abundant life is a life that comes when you're living with meaning and purpose for Jesus. And so knowing this reality, it's worth asking. Doing a little introspection. What hindrances or roadblocks are preventing you from experiencing abundant life in Christ? What hindrances or roadblocks are preventing you from embracing God's way instead of your own way? And what needs to happen in your life to prepare the way of the Lord? In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper said, but whatever you do, find the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life and find your way to say it and live for it and die for it. And you will make a difference that lasts. And so church, let me encourage you to ask the Lord what good plans he has in store for you. Instead of praying, dear God, here's my plans, now will you bless them? We should be praying with our Bibles open. We need to get in the holy habit of praying, Dear God, show me what your plans are for me that I might be blessed by following them. You see the difference? I don't think you see the difference. Do you see the difference? God, here's my plans, now bless them. Versus God, what's your plans that I might be blessed in following them? Do you see the difference, church? I'm not getting a lot of love this morning, but we're going to keep going. Psalm 25, 4 and 5 says it best. Make me to know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. That's the prayer, right? That's the prayer. This leads us to the second way to make room for Jesus. Make room for his word. So we have his way, his word, his word. Look at verses 4 and 5. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him or being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. You know, church, during the height of his evangelistic ministry, people from all walks of life came in droves to hear the messages of D.L. Moody in the Hippodrome in New York City. In fact, during one particular meeting, the crowd was so massive that D.L. Moody did something that's practically unheard of for any preacher to do. He asked people to leave. He asked people to leave. I believe I have a picture on the screen that depicts that. Chris, can you bring up? There it is, right there. D.L. Moody. This is, of course, not a picture picture. It's kind of a depiction, right? Just to give you a visual. 
And so in his book, D.L. Moody, A Life, Kevin Belmont tells the story. He says, Moody looked down at the large crowd seated before him and could see that many of those in the hall had attended meetings once, perhaps several times before. And on one level, he might have been glad to see them, but there was something else to think about. The large crowd outside of people who weren't able to get in before the Hippodrome's doors were closed. And so, when it was time to announce another hymn, Moody chose instead to practice some Christian charity toward the outsiders, and he urged others to do so. He said, now won't a thousand of you Christians go to Fourth Avenue Hall and pray for this meeting and let those outside have your seats? This said, some did stand and exit the hall as the hymns began, but many more empty seats were needed. And so Moody spoke again after the first verse had been sung. Picture this, all right? You're singing a hymn, you know, whatever. My Savior's love for me. And then Moody comes up, pause, pause. Hold on a second. And this is what he says. He says, not half enough have left. I want many more of you to go out. I see many of you here every night. If I knew your names, I would call you out. Well, then conviction set in. And more people took the not-so-subtle hint. And many of those who had been outside were now shown out by the ushers. Imagine, like, me coming up here and like, get out of here. I see you. Go. Go. Make room. Crazy. But Moody, you know, he had guts. Well, in the same way, during the height of his ministry in the wilderness, John the Baptist, he, he wasn't kicking people out, but he also drew an unprecedented crowd. We're told that all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him. So some say that as many as 300,000 Jewish people came out to hear John's message. And so what exactly was his message to the crowds of people? Well, simply put, it was a message of repentance. Now, the Greek word repentance is metanoia, which means to change one's mind. John called his Jewish listeners to change their mind and turn from their sin, and then signify the inward repentance by the outward action of baptism. Now, it's important to note that John's baptism is different than believer's baptism. What, what, what we do here at the church today is different than John's baptism. You see, John's baptism was a sign of repentance only. Since Jesus has, had not yet fulfilled his earthly mission, those who were baptized under John did it because they recognized that they were sinners, and they desired spiritual cleansing, and they wanted to prepare themselves for the Messiah's arrival. Believer's baptism, on the other hand, is a sign of new life in Christ. It identifies a person with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and it's a public declaration that says Jesus is your Savior and Lord. And this is the baptism that we practice today. In fact, in the book of Acts, we find this affirmed through a conversation that the Apostle Paul had a group with of believers or disciples of Jesus. And we'll take a look at these verses. Verses 3 through 5 in chapter 19. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, well, we're baptized into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And so then on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul emphasized, he made a point to make sure that, that believer's baptism was emphasized. Now here's the deal. Despite these distinctions, the fact remains that the message of repentance and baptism is timeless. That doesn't change. In fact, it's a message that's just as important now as it was then. People still need to be confronted with their sin. They still need to be called to change their mind and trust in Jesus. And they still need to go public with their faith through baptism. None of this has changed. You know, friends, there are many churches today who 
for the sake of reaching people, never talk about the tough stuff from the pulpit. They never talk about sin. They never talk about repentance. They never talk about the realities of an eternal hell. And the irony is that these churches may reach a lot of people, but the people that they're reaching are no closer to Jesus because they've never dealt with the sin in their own lives. You're only getting parts of the gospel that make them feel good. And so it's for this reason we're warned in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word of God and be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct and rebuke and encourage your people with good teaching for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and they're going to look for teachers who will tell them whatever they want to hear. And they will reject the truth and chase after myths. John the Baptist did not tell the crowds what they wanted to hear. He told the crowds what they needed to hear. And interestingly enough, people kept coming anyway. But why did, why did he say what they needed to hear? Well, he did so for good reason. Again, R. Kent Hughes said, when men and women are awakened to the facts of judgment and their own sin, they become eager listeners to the good news of the Savior who brings forgiveness. Good news is only good news if you understand the bad news, right? So when you start ripping people to shreds, they start listening to you and waiting for the good news to come, right? Of course, I'm not talking about hellfire and brimstone and, and yelling at people. I'm just saying we got we to gotta preach the whole counsel of God, yes? And that's exactly what happened in the wilderness. John preached the unfiltered truth of God's word, and thousands of people were convicted of their sins. And as a result, they formed these endless lines to be baptized as a sign of repentance, which in turn prepared them for Christ's arrival. Friends, if you desire to make room for Jesus in your life, if you desire to be closer to him, if you desire to have special intimacy with him, if you desire to be used by him, then you need to put yourself in a position to hear and respond to the unfiltered truth of God's word. It's through his word that we learn who Jesus is, what he's done, and how to follow him. It's through his word and the power of the Holy Spirit that we're convicted of sin and called to action. It's through his word that we are changed. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You see, that word sanctify means to consecrate or to set apart or to be made holy. Church, the truth of God's word is the catalyst to become more like Jesus. And so therefore, we need to do everything in our power to make sure we have a steady diet of it. This includes sitting under the unfiltered preaching of God's word on Sundays, going to Bible studies, doing daily devotions, memorizing scripture, and so forth. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And so it's worth asking. What needs to change in your daily and or weekly rhythms to make more room for God's word in your life? What needs to change? And this leads us to the third way to make room for Jesus. Make room for his work. For his work. Look at verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. When I was a kid, I used to have a subscription to Highlights Magazine. Anybody ever have Highlights Magazine before? Interestingly enough, first out of Honesdale, Pennsylvania. And uh, by far, my favorite section in Highlights Magazine was the Where's Waldo section. You guys remember Where's Waldo? 
Um, for those of you who don't know what Where's Waldo is, I'm sorry, you're living in the wrong generation. <laughs> but it was a series of these detailed, double-paged illustrations that depicted a large crowd of people doing a variety of different things. And blending in with that large crowd of people was our friend Waldo. And so the challenge of Where's Waldo is to find Where's Waldo. And if you found Waldo quick enough, then you give yourself a pat on the back and you brag to your friends. You know, sadly, there are many Christians, all right? You know, this is, this, and I get it. This is kind of a hard-hitting message today, but, you know, it is what it is. There are many Christians who live their lives like Waldo. And what do I mean by that? We blend in with the crowd, and we're hard to find. John was the opposite. People knew where John was, and he knew who John, they knew who John was. If his unique fashion choices didn't give him away, his diet certainly did. Now, at first glance, John comes across as a bit of a socially awkward weirdo. He's kind of the guy that, I don't want to buy that weirdo, right? I mean, the dude, like, is eating bugs with, dipped in a honey. That's gross to us. But make no mistake about it, John's lifestyle was intentional and purposeful. He knew exactly what he was doing. You see, John chose to adopt the lifestyle of the ancient prophet Elisha, who was also called to preach a message of repentance to God's people way back when. And John deliberately chose to live in such a way that separated him from the culture and identified him as a servant of the Lord. Moreover, by adopting a simple lifestyle, he was able to be more wholly devoted to the work of the Lord. And church, I believe we can learn a lot from John's example. Now, just to be clear, just so we can be clear, nowhere in Scripture are believers commanded to dress like the prophets of old, nor are we called to have a steady diet of locusts and wild honey. If that's your thing, that's cool. You can do that, just don't invite me over for dinner. You know what I'm saying? However, as believers, we are commanded, we are commanded to behave differently than the world around us. Romans 12.2 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And part of behaving differently than the world around us, and this is going to be a tough one, but part of behaving differently, we have to change our lifestyles to free up time for the Lord's work. Like Jesus, we need to adjust our lives to be about the Father's business. Remember when he got separated from his parents? And Joseph and Mary were like, Jesus, he found little 12-year-old Jesus understood this. He was in the temple, like, where were you? What are you doing? He said, what? I have to be part of my father's business. Church, if we're painfully honest, many of us would admit that we've adopted lifestyles that are so busy and so time-consuming and so demanding that we have no time for the work of the Lord. We've allowed our calendars and our schedules to impose on our Christian lives. And in doing so, we've actually robbed ourselves of the joy that comes from doing kingdom work. Country music group Alabama has a song called, I'm in a hurry and I don't know why. And some of the lyrics read, I'm in a hurry to get things done. I'm not going to sing it. Oh, I rush and rush until life's no fun. All I really got to do is live and die. Even I'm in a hurry and don't know why. We're all in a hurry and we don't know why. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. We're all just doing stuff, and then we go to bed at night, and we do more stuff the next day, and we go to bed at night. And we're like, what did I even accomplish today? That really, truly matters. Friends, if this song describes you, you're not alone. 
Our Western culture promotes, even advocates for a hurried, overscheduled life. But I want to tell you something. That did not come from God. God didn't create a life of hurry. We did. We did. And in doing so, we've actually created a hindrance to our spiritual growth. In his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which, by the way, like, amazing book. Free plug. I'm not getting paid for this, but The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry is a great book. John Mark Comer noted that Michael Zigarelli of the Charleston School of Business conducted an obstacles to Christian growth survey of over 20,000 Christians across the globe and identified busyness as a major distraction to spiritual life. And listen carefully to his hypothesis. He said, it may be the case that Christians are assimilating into a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopted secular assumptions about how we live, which leads to more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. Does that not describe the Western church? John Mark Comer notes, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you need to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And he goes on to explain, listen, we all want the life of Jesus. There's not one believer that would say, oh yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to, of course I want the life of Jesus. But when you start saying, yeah, but do you want the lifestyle of Jesus? That's where we all kind of pump the brakes. Church, Jesus was never in a hurry to get things done. And he always prioritized the Father's business over everything else. And so it's worth asking. And I know that's really kind of simplifying things. If you want to know more about that, you want that, those thoughts expanded, you could buy the book. He does a good job talking about it. But it is worth asking, what do you need to give up to give more time to the Father's business? And that, that answer might look differently. It will look differently for every one of us in this room. But what do you need to give up to give more time to the Father's business? Because, friends, listen, if you desire to be used by God and do more of his work, it's not going to happen by accident. You need to be intentional and purposeful about the way you live your life. I like what Psalm 37.5 says, Commit everything you do to the Lord, trust him, and he will help you. He will help you. And this leads us to the fourth and final way to make room for Jesus. Make room for his worship. For his worship. Look at verses 7 and 8. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know, whenever you go to a concert, there's usually an opening act before the headliner performs, right? And the sole job of the opening act is to warm up the audience for the main act. And so therefore, they're expected to stay on schedule, perform their set, and get off the stage. Well, in 2006, the opening act for a major country group consistently played past their allotted time. They deliberately stole the spotlight from the main act and cost them a lot of money in the process. And so as a result, they were kicked off the tour. John the Baptist never forgot his place in the grand scheme of things. Even though he was given a very big task, he never got a big head. He recognized that he was nothing more than the opening act whose job was to prepare people for the main event, who was Jesus. In fact, in John uh, chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist said, He, referring to Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Friends, just like John, 
we need to remember that we are nothing more. We are nothing more than opening acts whose job is to point others to Jesus. We are nothing more than unworthy people who have been given the privilege to prepare hearts for a worthy God. And the best way to remember this reality is to maintain a posture of worship. William Temple said to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, and to open the heart to the love of God, to devote to the will, the will to the purpose of God. Church, the more time we spend worshiping who God is, the more we're going to stay grounded in who we are. Psalm 95, verse 6 and 7 explains who we are. It says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down and let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we, we're just sheep. <laughs> we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Worship does that, right? Worship reminds us like our place in this world. Michael W. Smith, he was always wondering. He was looking for a reason. Roaming through the night to find my place in this world. All he has to do is read Psalm 95, 6 and 7. Come on, Michael. I love, love you, Michael, if you're watching, which you never would or ever, anything like that, but in case. You might stumble across our service someday. But as to close, friends, in all seriousness, as to close, it is worth asking, have you any room for Jesus? Have you any room for his ways and his word, his work and his worship? And if your answer is no to any one of these areas, let me encourage you to ask the Lord what needs to change in your life to make that a yes? And then commit to making that change in your life starting today. I promise you're not going to regret it. No one ever regrets saying, you're going to sit on your deathbed and say, man, I just, I committed more time to Jesus. Who's going to regret that on their deathbed? But I tell you what, a lot of us might be on our deathbeds looking back and saying, man, what could have been? Oh, if I only said no to that stupid thing or that time-wasting thing or that thing... Man, if I only said no to that, it would have freed up more time for Jesus. Friends, God wants so much more for your life than what could have been. And we could start right today. Maybe, maybe you're, you're at a point in your life where you're, you're already looking back and you're feeling a little guilty. Listen, we serve a God of countless second chances. John Mark abandoned Paul in the middle of his ministry. And God turned things around to the point where he wrote this gospel. So God could change things and turn things around in your life as well. One of my favorite sayings is the best time to plant an apple tree is 10 years ago or today. In other words, you can't, you can't deal with fruit from 10 years ago. You can't live in regret, but you can, start that, you can plant that tree now and you can live the rest of your life prioritizing Jesus over everything else. Amen? And of course, the very first place that you need to make room for Jesus is in your heart, right? In other words, you need to make sure that you're saved. Now, if you don't know what that means, listen closely. The Bible teaches that God created us to be with him, to have this relationship with him, but our sin separates us from him. And there's nothing that we can do to bridge that separation. Apart from a Savior, we are dead in our sins and we are without hope. And when we die, we will go to a place of eternal punishment that the Bible calls hell. But the good news is that 2,000 years ago, God, in his great love for you, became a man in Jesus and died on the cross, taking the punishment of your sins, my sins, upon himself. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, and in doing so, he provided a way to receive forgiveness of your sins, be saved, and receive the free gift of eternal life. 
John 3.16, what, what is the way? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, that's the way, it's true belief, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, if you want to receive forgiveness of your sins and be assured of your salvation and receive that free gift, all you must do is admit that you're a sinner and repent of your sin, asking God to forgive you and then believe in the person and work of Jesus. Trust in him and him alone to save you. And at the moment of belief, you'll receive that free gift of eternal life because it comes by faith. It doesn't come by works. It comes by faith. A simple trust in the person and work of Jesus. And if that's a decision you'd like to make today, you can do so right now. That's the beauty of it. it doesn't, you don't have to work your entire life to be saved. You can make that decision right now in the quietness of your seat simply by praying to God. Just asking him to forgive you and trusting in Jesus. And all I ask is if you decide to make that decision for the first time today, let us know by either marking it on your connect slip and just putting it in the gray basket on your way out, or you can come forward after the service and you can pick up just these small little information packets, have some information about our church, the Gospel of John, a questionnaire, and a little note from the pastors. Um, and the reason why we're just asking you to take that next step is so we want to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus. It's one thing to get saved, which is beautiful, and it's amazing, but the journey comes afterwards, man. You get to start living life with Jesus, and we want to help you with that. So just let, let us know somehow, some way, let us know, and uh, we'll get you, Lord willing, started on the right path. So at this time, I'd like to invite the praise team to come forward. We're going to close with singing one more song. And as they come forward, let me pray over you one last time. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the gospel of Mark and the reminder right out of the gate that you are a God of second chances. And Lord, undoubtedly, as we meditate on, on a message that really has to do with just making more room for you in our lives, God, I'm sure there's many of us here, myself included, who, are, who have some regrets, that wish that they've committed more time to, to your way, to your word, to your works, to your worship. And Father, you, you do not want us to live in that guilt. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we praise you for that truth. But Lord, we do all want to finish strong. And so I pray that you would help us, God. Whatever changes that we need to make in our own lives to make more room for Jesus, help us to do that so we could have that special intimacy with the Lord and give you honor and glory and live our lives with meaning and purpose. And hear those words, well done, good and faithful servants. We thank you, Jesus, and all God's people said. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.